in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Edmund betrays his other siblings. So if you remember, there's Peter and Susan and Lucy and Edmund, and Edmund has an encounter with this lady who we now know to be the, the evil white witch, and she offers him some Turkish delight, and he sells out his siblings, and he becomes a traitor. But what he finds out is that this witch is really wicked. Uh, he, he goes back to her and he gets thrown in prison. And instead of Turkish delight, he's given stale bread and he just wants to escape, but things keep getting worse for him. And eventually he learns that he's going to be sacrificed on this ancient table of stone. Well, that's problematic for Edmund. So his siblings and Aslan start to work to rescue him. And it comes to a point in the story where the witch has a parlay with Aslan and the other Narnians. And they appeal to her to give Edmund back. But she says that there's something written in the deep magic of Narnia that says all traitors belong to her. And and that she owns their life and she can kill them if she pleases. And one of the Narnians looks at her and sort of looks over at Aslan and sneers at her because obviously Aslan is stronger than her and he can free Edmund at any time. But the witch looks at him and she says something like this. Well, she says exactly this with a smile that was almost a snarl. She says, do you really think your master can rob me of my rights by force? Force and power on one level really mean nothing because of the way that Narnia was ordered. There was something written into the fabric of Narnia that said pure force doesn't do anything. Well, there's something written into the fabric of our universe that says the exact same thing. And we see this play out over and over again in story after story, yet somehow and for some reason we fail to believe it. We fail to realize it in our own lives. So we keep reading the story and Aslan doesn't disagree with her. He he agrees that he can't do anything by pure force to release Edmund from her grasp. So instead, he offers himself up in Edmund's place. And, And he goes to the table of stone and he's sacrificed on the table of stone. And then Lucy and Susan are in tears all night thinking everything's been lost. The white witch has won. Nothing good is ever going to happen again. Or so it appeared. But then there's that large crack, this loud sound, and they think something worse is happening, but they turn around and Aslan is standing there in all of his glory. And they don't understand it at all. And he tells them that this witch knew that there was magic, but there was a deeper magic still that she forgot about. And that was if a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would be working backwards. And this ironic victory and power of sacrifice is made really, really clear but it's mysterious and we can't quite put our finger on it, but we come to realize that everyone in Narnia needs to reorder their lives in light of this deeper magic. What appeared on the surface was not really all that there is, and so a new world order is coming into place. Well, this story depicts what the Bible teaches us about Jesus in the deeper magic, if you will, of the redemptive story. 
And, and for some reason, we can affirm it here. We see it clearly in Narnia and in virtually every other story. It's amazing how the most godless of individuals catch on to this in the story form. But in the rest of life, we try to live with the power that this world says is powerful, which is the coercion and dominion over other people. And when we see sacrifice and service, we label it as weakness and we avoid it at all costs. I think this is what's going on in Ephesians 3, verse 1, where Paul goes on to something of a major digression. He gives this parenthetical paragraph in Ephesians 3, and the reason he does so is because he's just proclaimed the glories of the gospel and the glorious rule of Christ, and then he says, I, Paul, a prisoner. And he anticipates that this is going to be really confusing to his listeners. How is it that Paul could just declare the glory of God, the reign of Christ, and then recognize in the same breath that he's a prisoner? How does this work? Isn't Christ ruling? Isn't he reigning? I think what Paul is going to do in this apparent digression is to lay the foundation to show us how to live in this world when we're acknowledging the rule of Christ, but it just doesn't feel like he actually reigns. Have you been there? Do you ever walk through this world intellectually admitting Christ is the king, but, but feeling nothing of his reign? Feeling nothing of the freedom from sin in your own life? See nothing for, of freedom from sin across the planet where you look out and all you see is the reign of Satan. You see nothing of the reign of Christ. Well, how do we walk forward in this world? How do we navigate that? Well, in this digression, or so-called digression, Paul is going to give us some hooks to hang on to so that we can navigate this world believing and operating in this ironic victory of Christ when it seems like it's not really there. So as we get there, we need a quick recap on where we've been. Paul's been laying out this marvelous, redemptive plan of God. He started in Ephesians 1 talking about God's electing grace. He talked about our adoption as sons, our redemption from sin, the sealing of the Spirit, these glorious things that are experienced both in personal and corporate salvation. So in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, he pointed out that we were dead in sins, but now we've been made alive in Jesus Christ. And then in verses 11 through 18 of chapter 2, he's pointing out that we need to see the unfolding of God's redemptive story. We just sang those words. Well, the unfolding was that now Gentiles are included into the people of God. There is now a new kingdom, the church, that has no geographic boundaries or ethnic or DNA distinctions, but the church is representative of Christ's rule and reign in the heavens. In fact, Paul says that the church is that which Christ fills all things. So so the church is here, it's expanding over the earth, and in doing so, Christ's presence expands over the earth. So you can see why, when we get to this glorious climax of the pyramid, the church, as the, in, the, the undeniable proof of Christ's reign, that when Paul says, I, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, that he needs to digress and tell us how both can be true, how Christ can reign in the church, 
that the, the very apostle to the Gentiles is in chains. So we are going to, I'm going to try to give you a few things to hold on to, some actions to take or some steps to go through that I think we need to do every single day. I, I think that we need this every day. And when you start feeling like Christ is not alive in me, or Christ is not reigning in this world, you need to go through this cycle of steps and then hit repeat and go over and over and over again. We begin by reflecting on the gospel. Let's, let's read this, and I think you're going to pick up that this reflection on the gospel pervades the entire text, but it's going to show up especially at the front side. But let's get this whole text in our mind. Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming you have heard about the administration of God's grace that he gave to me for you, the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written above. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. By this grace, or this grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose, accomplishing Christ Jesus our Lord. In him we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So then, I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are for your glory. So Paul introduces himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And if you're using the Christian standard Bible, there's this big dash afterwards that sets off everything else that's, that he's about to say. And if we got rid of this section, uh, it would make sense to start reading verse 14. So you could conceivably delete verses 2 through 13 from your Bible. And Paul could say, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, for this reason... I kneel before the Father, from whom every family on heaven and on earth is named, and everything would make sense. Because for chapters 1 and 2, he said that the gospel is to result in the praise of God's glorious grace. So he's expounded the gospel, and for that reason, he now kneels before the Father. So, so we have to ask, why is this paragraph here? And as I've already indicated, I think it's because there's this uh, dissonance between the glories of the gospel in Paul's imp- imprisonment. And so we need to navigate a way forward, and Paul gives us uh, the hooks to hold on to here. In the very beginning is to reflect on the gospel. So number one, reflect on the gospel. Now I want you to notice that Paul says that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. 
Well, th- this pri- imprisonment that Paul is in, I think is connected to Acts 21. And a rational human being would say that he's a prisoner of the Romans because of the Jews. But Paul has reframed or he re-envisions reality to say that he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So even in his imprisonment, he sees it as the reign of Christ that is being executed, not the reign of the Romans. So as Paul goes on to say this, I think he intends for us to hear everything else and then reinterpret reality through a theological lens, which is the lens of the gospel. Because the gospel starts to show us that the power forces of this world are nothing but pawns in the plan of Christ. So we need to reflect on the gospel so we have these gospel lenses or this, these eyes of faith to see what actually is going on. So it reorients reality. It really reorients us to reality. So he mentions this, assuming you have heard about the administration of God's grace that he gave to me for you. I think this is a tongue-in-cheek sort of comment of, hey, you should actually get this already because you've heard about how God is administrating his work in the world, and it was through Christ's death and my imprisonment. You've heard about this. You know this, but it doesn't always make sense, so you need to reflect on this once again. So he says that you're able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ by reading the things that I briefly wrote above. By reading this, you're able to understand why it sometimes looks like Christ doesn't actually reign. So he appeals to what he's already written, and he tries to show that by the Gentiles' inclusion into redemptive history, God is genuinely at work. These aren't just old words on a page and proclamations of nothingness. This is a dramatic change in the course of world history, and it's evidence of God's power and working and grace. So we should not be blinded to what is happening here. This is tough for us because we're so far removed from the Jew-Gentile conflict that we can read about this inclusion of the Gentiles and act as if it doesn't really matter at all. What Paul wants us to do is to go back and reread these sections and meditate on them and reflect on them and see how actually this is the start of new creation. This is no less dramatic or exciting or powerful than when the the trees started to bud again after the flood and the world was recreated. That's the kind of power that's on display in the inclusion of the Gentiles into into the people of God. So he points us to work back and reread that section. And I think that this is a call to meditate and reflect on the truths of the gospel is the means by which we see reality clearly. Notice, though, that this reality, the power of the gospel, is not at odds with service and sacrifice and suffering. Because in the very next breath, in verse 7, Paul says that he was made a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of God's power. Those concepts I don't think we always put together. Service, gift, grace, and power. Well, in the gospel world that we live in, these things actually do go together to where service and triumph are one and the same. 
think what Paul is doing here by drawing attention to himself is to show us how he is embodying what Jesus did, how he is picking up the mantle of Christ, so to speak, and and now going forward. So where Jesus declared the gospel of the kingdom to the Jews, Paul is declaring the gospel of the kingdom to the Gentiles. Okay, so what I'm, what I'm trying to do here is to show that Paul is recapitulating the life of Christ, and he's pointing hit, to himself as an example that we would recapitulate his life in our own. We have good evidence to do this in other texts where he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Well, I'm trying to draw your attention to the way that happened because we start to see that we have a call of service and sacrifice just as Paul did. So there, where Jesus was a servant of Yahweh, about which the prophecies were written and understood, Paul was the servant of Christ, about whom the prophecies and mysteries were revealed. So, so where the prophecies were written about Christ, they were re- revealed to Paul, and now he's giving them to us, and he's saying, read this, and you're becoming like me in this way. So, so there's a passing on of the torch, so we should not start to think that the, the glory of the risen Christ means suffering for Paul and no suffering for us. We follow in his footsteps. God's power was displayed through the death, resurrection, and exaltation of Christ, as Paul described in chapter 1. And now in this text, Paul is becoming a prisoner and a servant of the gospel through the working of God's power. So we see this pattern developing in Christ and now in Paul, and it's going to be true in us that God's power is made evident and worked out through service and suffering and sacrifice. So a common theme in Jesus' teaching and actions was the power of sacrifice in the greatness of service. So he regularly rebuked his disciples for desiring the kind of power that the Gentiles exercised rather than the self-giving power that he himself modeled. Well, Paul is now writing to the Gentiles, telling them that they need to exercise a different kind of power. And later in the letter, he will say, don't live like the Gentiles live. His point is that Jesus has redefined weakness and power. And if you hear the message about Jesus and you think that it's a message of worldly power, you're missing it altogether. So I think that we need to start reading everything that Paul says and does in light of everything Jesus said and did. And we're going to see that Paul becomes an imitation of Christ. And as we see his suffering, it's not at odds with Christ's suffering. It's, it's following the pattern of Christ's suffering. And that's a pattern that we ought to take on as well. So when we start to feel s- suffering in our life, it does not mean that Christ doesn't reign. When we start to see worldly powers grabbing hold on, on everything, that doesn't mean that Christ doesn't reign. When you start to, to sense a battle of sin in your own life and you wish it was just over immediately right now, that, that's running away from the cruciform suffering path that both Jesus and Paul took and that they invite us and demand that we walk as well. So when we hear that Paul was a prisoner, we need to respond not by thinking this doesn't make sense, but by saying this makes perfect sense because God's power is made perfect in weakness and suffering. So how should we respond to these 
thinks. How, how should we respond to this opening digression paragraph? Well, first, I think that you and I need to read and reread and reread the Bible over and over and over again. This is not Sunday school band-aids to put on your spiritual wounds. This is the very stuff that gives you life. You need to read the Bible. I, I think we all know this. But, but I think we all fail to do this over and over again, and then we wonder, why is it that the world seems so dreary? Why is it that my life is so broken? Well, it's because it's in the gospel that we find hope and life, and we make sense of the messed up reality that we encounter. So read the Bible over and over again. Read it on your own. Read it with others. Listen to it. Memorize it. Get the Bible inside of you so that you become a different kind of person and you recognize that the the power that Christ brings is one that entails suffering. and, And then you're going to start to see that suffering is not an evidence that Christ isn't at work, but it's actually an evidence that he is. So first, I think you need to read the Bible over and over again. Second, we need to look to those who have gone before us. Don't try to make sense of your Christian experience in isolation from other Christians. If you try to do that, on the one side, you're going to start to think that what is normal Christian suffering is unique to you, and you're going to start to have pity parties over and over again and feel like your life is awful and no one else has had these problems. On the other side, when you do sense victory over sin and progression in personal holiness and sanctification, you're going to start to think, I'm the best. I've I've got it. I've got me, and that's all I need. Well, you need to frame your Christian life within the experience of other Christians. Paul is giving us that directive by talking about himself. Paul is not pointing to himself to say, I'm awesome. I think he's pointing to himself to say, you can calibrate your Christian experience based on the experiences of others, and, and that's going to help you go forward. So how, how should we do this? First, I want to say you need to start talking to people in this church. And you need to talk to people in this church in a way that talks about your Christian experience in plain and real and honest terms. If nobody knows what's going on in your life, they're not going to share what's going on in their lives, and you're going to calibrate your Christian experience to theirs with this facade that's not real. And, and I think that's maybe where we start to say, I don't want to talk to other people about my Christian life because everyone else is perfect and I'm awful. Well, we need to be vulnerable and open with one another, but we need to take the time to actually get to know one another and talk about the joys and the sorrows of our Christian experience. That way we can weep with one another and rejoice with one another as we go through this life together. So, so that's one level at which we connect our Christian experience with that of others. The second, I think you need to read biographies and autobiographies of Christians who've gone before us. If you have never done this, um, you're, you're missing a gift of God. If, if you are looking for some, let me just give you a couple of suggestions. I I would suggest that you pick up Jim Elliott's journal that's been published. He he is very open and transparent there. And he he died, I think, when he was like 28. And so you see this guy who, who lived a very short life, and you see joy and sorrow 
failure and success in, in the Christian faith, and I think that's helpful. But, but then also read, read biographies of Christians like way back. Like read Fox's Book of Martyrs and see Christians who suffered and, and Christians who denied the faith and later repented. Read all sorts of biographies to, to help calibrate your Christian experience. It is a little bit unfortunate that sometimes biographers make individuals out to be better than they actually were. So as you read these things, if you start to become discouraged that this person was perfect, just know that probably not their whole life is recorded rightly and there, there are more failures than might be admitted, especially if it's an autobiography. But, but read these things and calibrate your Christian experience in light of it. But then I think third, read literature Listen to songs, watch movies, and see the truth that suffering and sacrifice is the genuine path to power and glory play out. This, this gets pictured over and over again, not even in just explicitly Christian things like the Chronicles of Narnia. I, I don't know why it is. I have some suspicions, but I think the most godless authors are writing biblical truths as they show that weakness triumphs over strength. And when you're watching movies and reading books and listening to music, when you start to catch these things, think about their truth and recognize that they only have truth because they connect to the truest story, which is the story of God's redemptive work in this world, where power is trumped by weakness. So don't allow your listening to songs and reading and movies to be mindless entertainment, but allow it to form you to be the kind of person who embraces weakness over strength and power. So number one, reflect on the gospel in any way you can, particularly by reading the Bible, talking with other Christians, and seeing the truths of the gospel in, in literature and media. Number two, remember and realize your role in God's redemptive plan. So when I say realize your role, I mean like actualize it, play it out. So don't just remember that you have a role on the script of God's redemptive story, but actually act it out in your life. So remember and realize your role in God's redemptive plan. T Paul talks about his here in verses 8 through 12, and then he talks about the role of the church. So listen as I read these verses and distinguish between Paul's role right now where he says, this grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ, and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. So that was Paul's role. On the script of the drama of redemption, Paul had a part to play, and that was to record the mysteries of redemption so that the rest of us can read it and reread it and reflect on it and understand it. That was Paul's role, and now he talks about the result of that, which is the church's role. Verse 10, this is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. So we have a part to play as the church, which is to make it known the wisdom and power of God to the rulers on earth and the authorities in heaven as the gathered assembly. You have a part to play, and, and you need to remember that and work it out. Now, I think if you're like me, there are times where you say, I don't want to play my part. 
And, and I'm questioning God's wisdom in writing that part into the script. Why didn't Jesus rise from the dead and instead of ascending into heaven, set up a throne and crush all of the rulers and authorities? Why, why instead did God appoint Christ as the head of the church and make the church the visible representation of Christ on this planet? That, I don't understand it. This is a mystery to me. If I wrote the script, Jesus would be here now and, and his power would be clear in the most clear way. He, he would be on a throne. He would have a rod of iron and he'd be telling people what to do directly. Well, instead, God's wisdom and Christ's rule are being displayed through a weak and broken but growing and glorious church that expands across the planet. Paul has already talked about the church in that I think there are three threads that we can grab onto where we can start to see how the church displays the wisdom and power of God. The first is that the church serves as the earthly representation of Christ's rule and God's power. This is what I've been hinting at already, but it is the church that, that extends Christ's rule and reign across the planet. And it demonstrates that our human conceptions about power and authority need to be turned on their head. It shows us that God has a different kind of authority that welcomes others into it that doesn't just crush other people. Our distorted views of power say, I need to crush people as objects or use them in, in, in just get my own way. Well, Christ is getting his own way through the pervasive power of weakness. So he sets up the church as his rulers and, and as his presence. And what's interesting to me is that as human rulers and authorities look at that weakness and scorn it and persecute it and try to stamp it out, all of those kingdoms and emperors who have done that don't exist anymore, but the church does. And, and there's this wide-angle view that God gives us by allowing the church to represent Christ's reign, which is to say that no human ruler, no matter how strong or powerful in the moment, can oppose it. There, there are what are now funny inscriptions in writings where there are emperors who say that the church is not going to exist. And they talk about persecution and, and how they're about to wipe out the last of Christianity. Well, well, none of those emperors are around today, and neither are their kingdoms. But the church is. So God's power is made perfect in weakness, and that's seen over time as the church outlives and outlasts any kingdom that's marked by geographic borders or DNA or power in terms of wealth or anything else. This is a reminder that we need because we, I think, are trying to grapple with how do we live in a particular country with geographic borders, but recognize that everything that that country is about is in terms of a human standard of power, and, and it's not going to outlast the church. Well, th I, I think that we need to start to live out our identity as a church, as our primary identity, and understand that our nation is going to fade away. It, it's not going to last. It will come and it will go, but the church will abide forever. And we rightly, I think there's a right way to be patriotic. There, there's something good about saying, my country is the best country ever. 
but but there's also something that can be distorting and corrupting that starts to align your life and heart with the power structures of this world when the way that God gave us to display his wisdom and power is through a church that has no geographic boundaries. So, so one thread, as Jew and Gentile become one body, is that Christ's power is demonstrated over time as it's the only kingdom, the only nation, the only citizenship that will last. S- the second thread is that the church serves as an inbreaking sign of the new creation that is to come on the final day. There's a reason that Paul talks about uh, Jesus taking the two, the Jew and the Gentile, and making them one new body. Well, that, that's indicative of um, a new Adam. This is recalling the language from the Old Testament where God made Adam, and out of that one body, he made another person. Well, now out of two, there's one, and it signals that the new creation is coming. That out of the many, because of the one Spirit, the one Lord, the one God and Father of all, there will be one new creation that serves God's purposes forever. So right now, as we just see the inbreaking of that, it, it, it's like a little plant that you kind of wonder, is this actually going to take off? We, we have this um, mint plant in a thing in our yard, and it's like, is that thing going to grow? Like there have been a, there's been a lot of rain, and it's been kind of battered and beaten, uh, but I know mint, it's going to keep growing. We're going to have more than we want. But I think that we look at this new creation of the church and we sometimes wonder, is this battered thing going to take off? Is this actually going to happen? But God is faithful to bring it about. And in, in, in that, in the weakness of the church, we see Christ's strength. It's the head who causes it to grow up into himself. The third thread of, of the way that the church manifests God's wisdom and power is that the church now serves as a holy temple. That was the last section of chapter 2 where, where Paul said that the church is a dwelling place for God. There's been a transposition of sacred places into a sacred people who have access to the true God, and this is where power is found. So in the ancient world, the, these nations were connected to different deities, and if the nation won a battle, it was sort of like proof that their God was powerful. But the problem was that their gods were all fickle. You never knew when they were going to win or lose. You also didn't know what they demanded of you, and you never really had access to them. Well, Paul points out that the church, as a dwelling place for God, is not guessing at what God's plans are. That's why he says in verse 11, this is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Where the gods of Rome, they didn't have eternal purposes. The, the God of the church does. The Lord of the church does. And so even though there's suffering that looks like weakness, it's actually strength, and it's an outworking of the eternal plan and purpose of God. And it finds its fulfillment by bringing us, who were once distanced from God, into communion with him. Not in fear or shame. We're not like the Romans who offer up a sacrifice to their God in fear before going into battle. We come with boldness and confident access. That's the language of verse 12. He gives us boldness and confident access through faith in him. There is power that no one else experiences in our weakness. So our response to this reality should be to know our role, which is to declare God's power and wisdom through weakness, and we need to embrace it. 
We need to lean into it. We don't need to be embarrassed about it. So for those of you who might be inclined to be discouraged and fearful and, and to want to disconnect yourself from the church because it's weak, lean into that because that's where you will know God's wisdom and power. I think that's why we are dry, trying to draw forward, draw together and relocate and replant so that we can be a visible representation of Christ on this earth. We, we can do that here in this place, and, but I, I think we're going to be able to do that better as we keep working hard like many of you did yesterday to get us into this new building. And I think we need to pray that God does this sooner rather than later so that we can embrace our calling more fully and work this out more vividly. Now, I want to answer a, a, a brief objection that you might have. Isn't our move to go to a bigger and better building in a more visible property, a move to capitulate to the world's conception of power and deny the weakness of God that, that is evident by us meeting here in this place? I, I think that's a legitimate question, but I, I want to suggest that we can sometimes confuse weakness with shoddiness or weakness with laziness or apathy, and sometimes we try to say we should just maintain the status quo to avoid being like the powers of this world. Well, I don't think that's the case. I, I think we need to say that God gives us opportunities, and he expects us to invest ourselves fully and to develop ourselves as much as we can to declare his glory most loudly and confidently as we enter before him with confident, confidence and boldness. Now, as we do this, the thing that would make this move according to the standards of this world instead of according to the working of God's power would, to be, would be to say this is about us, that this is primarily about trying to look better or not be embarrassed about our status as Christians, so we're going to try to dress it up in a nice, nicer building or something like that. A move to a new property and striving for excellence is a move of faithfulness. It's not a move to align ourselves with the powers of this world. But we need to keep that in mind because I think that while right now we sense our weakness and frailty and smallness, there could come a day where we start to become a little bit self-confident, where we start to say, we accomplished this, we did something. Well, the reason God brings people through weakness to a position of more visible strength is for him to receive glory. For us to be able to say, we could never have done this without God. And, and I think that's what's going on in this church. We look at this history and say, if God were not in this, this thing would be done already. And, and that's the kind of attitude we need to take on as we go forward as well. So we need to, as we try to navigate this world, knowing that Christ reigns, but often feeling like he doesn't, begin by reflecting on the gospel, and then by remembering and realizing our role in God's redemptive plan. But then third, we need to rejoice in suffering. And in fact, the former two allow for the latter. As we reflect on the gospel, as we remember and realize, work out our role in God's redemptive plan, when suffering comes, our response is to rejoice. Paul says, so then, because of these things, I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. 
They are your glory. I think the Ephesian church could have looked at Paul and said, this guy is imprisoned. And, and that shows that our Christ is not very powerful. And, and we're embarrassed by this. And we need to disconnect from this. And we're discouraged. Paul's telling them, no, this is the exact way that God works to show his power. And that's why I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus, not a prisoner of Rome. Well, when we experience suffering, there is something right about weeping. That Jesus shows us it's okay to weep about hard things. So when I say we need to rejoice in suffering, I'm not telling you to, to have this insane, obscene joy when, when something bad happens. That, that's not what I'm trying to say. There's, there's a kind of rejoicing that comes in tears and mourning and knowing that things are not right in this world. So when you encounter that, weep. When, when you encounter trouble, it's okay to be down. And when you see other Christians who are weeping, you have a covenantal responsibility to weep with them and to mourn with them. So when I say rejoice in suffering, I include all of those pieces in there. I'm trying to say don't be discouraged in your weeping. Don't be disheartened in your mourning. Because these are the very things that, that make God's power known. These are the very things that are the stuff of new creation working itself out in your life. So how do we, how we, do, how do we balance these things? Well, first I want to say you don't balance them. They go together. They fit like a puzzle piece. So it's not as if, where, where have I shed too many tears and where do I need to start you know, smiling again? It's not one or the other. I think both fit together like a puzzle piece where there's joy in sorrow, where there's strength in weakness. And we need to embrace both of these. So let me give you two suggestions for how to do this. The first is do not hide your weakness. I've already said this, but do not hide your weakness. Do not run from your suffering and do not wallow in discouragement in your afflictions. Put these things out in a way that you see them, you honestly recognize them, and you let other people see them too. Now, I'm not saying try to draw attention to yourselves. There, There is a way of operating in, in a community where you make everything about you and how hard life is for you. Don't do that. But, but also, don't hide things. Don't, don't be self-conscious about telling someone, this really cruddy thing happened this week, and, and I am weeping over this. That's why God gave us one another, is, is to invite them in and to see Christ stronger in them than in me. So whether it's pride or a culture of Minnesota nice or some kind of insecurity, don't hide yourself and your weaknesses and your discouragements and afflictions from others. Instead, invite others into this. And as they invite you into theirs, don't move on to tell a joke to try to distract them, but weep with them and mourn with them. Second, do not abandon sacrifice and self-giving for coercion and self-satisfaction. 
Do not abandon the sacrificing way of Christ for the self and self-taking and consuming way of the world. Jesus Christ turned everything on its head. Authority is redefined. Suffering is redefined. Pain is redefined. So don't run from those things. Walk into them knowing that Christ walks with you. Position yourself to embrace this cruciform path of Christ so that you will experience the joy of the resurrection both in spiritual ways and on that final day when Christ makes all things new. So don't hide and don't avoid. Embrace your suffering and rejoice in it. There is no doubt that starting in like 10 minutes, you're going to experience something in your life today or during this week that makes it seem like our king has not actually conquered, like, like Christ does not actually reign. You might feel like Susan and Lucy as they're mourning the death of Aslan and they hear a crack and they think things are only getting worse. Becoming a Christian has only made life worse for you, and and you're going to experience, I would imagine, some point in this week where that feels like it's the case. And you'll be tempted to wallow and worry, thinking that all is lost for nothing. And in that moment, reflect on the gospel. Reflect on the gospel. Recognize and realize your role is part of the church and rejoice in suffering, knowing that there's a future glory that's not worthy of being compared with the sufferings of this life.